begin our time together just with a word of prayer. Father, it's good to be in your house. And we pray that uh, as we have come here together, we are reminded of how much you love us, and mindful of all that we have received because your goodness towards us, and all that we have, not simply to treasure, but to share. Lord, today we share with one another our love for you and our love for each other. Lord, I'm asking especially for the grace to trust you more. As there has been the time spent in preparing for the sermon, putting words on a page, and rehearsing the delivery, may all that be nothing compared to what your Holy Spirit is going to do with and through your word. May it be evident, Lord, that you are with us, among us, present here today. And that we, as we recognize your presence, we allow you to do your work in our lives that need to be done to make us more like Christ. And we're praying all this in the name of the one who loves us, Jesus. Amen. Again, this morning, we're going to be looking at a passage of Scripture that's very familiar uh, to those within the Christian circle as well as those that are beyond the Christian faith. And that's the story of the rich ruler. I'd like to look at Luke 18, verses 18 through 27. I invite you to follow along as I would like to read it for us this morning. And ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and mother. And he said, all these things I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, One thing you still lack. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Jesus, seeing that he'd become sad, said, how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who had heard it said, then who can be saved? But he said, what is impossible with man is possible with God. Before we jump into this text this morning, um, I'd like to point out a couple of things that uh, I think kind of set the stage for our conversation here today. Uh, first, I want us to look back, if you have your Bibles open, or if you don't, you can grab one there in the pew and open it, and uh, take note of the... Um, the two passages of Scripture that precede the narrative that we've just read. 
the, the passage that deals with the prayer between the, the Pharisee and the tax collector as they are in the temple praying. There was only one who left that scene that morning justified. It was the one who was repentant, the one with a humble heart. He was the one who was received as uh, blessed in the approach of God. The other narrative is a very familiar story. It's a story of Jesus embracing the children. Uh, the disciples were quick to, to keep the children away, but Jesus in, in invited them to come. Let them come. And as he has had that time to bless the children, he makes this statement. Again, speaking about the character of the one who seeks God's favor. Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. The second point that uh, we need to remember is where all this is unfolding. This, This passage that we just read What's going on? Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. I'm trying to remember, but I think it's back in chapter 12, where we read that Jesus resolutely set out toward Jerusalem. And here we are six chapters later, and he's getting closer and closer and closer. I believe that what we have before us is the way Luke has put these narratives together is in many ways um, serving as examples of how we can, how we need to be in order to be able to approach Jesus, to be able to be where we need to be in relationship with Christ. You see, there's no room for self-righteousness. There's no room for pride or arrogance as demonstrated by the Pharisee. But as the publican demonstrated, the tax collector, a humility, a repentant heart. And then we have the children, where again we see the example of total trust. Uh, No questioning at all of the trust that to be exercised in Christ. And then... On the other side of our text this morning, Jesus spells out what's ahead of what's to be expected concerning his own cost to be congruent with God's will, his suffering, his crucifixion, his death, and his resurrection. But basically saying to his listeners and particularly to his disciples, it costs everything. It costs everything to be where we are to be to receive what God has in store for us through Christ Jesus. Now, this, this passage of Scripture that we read from Luke is also recorded in the Gospel of Matthew and Mark. And all three, all three Gospels make the note that this young man is quite wealthy. Mark is the one who speaks of him as being young. And Luke is the one who identifies him as a ruler, a ruler which might mean that he was either a member of the Sanhedrin or possibly, if nothing else, an official in one of the local synagogues. And using these parallel texts, we have the scene that we can appreciate. 
the sincerity of this man, this rich, young ruler, as he approaches Jesus and poses the question, what must I do to have eternal life? Remember, they're on the road to Jerusalem, and a crowd has already formed as they're approaching the city. Along with the disciples, there were countless others that were following. And for this ruler to come, as we read in the Gospel of, uh, let's see, I think it's Mark. Yeah, it's Mark that makes the statement that he came and fell before Jesus on his knees. His heart is sincere, and he's demonstrating his, his, his desire for the truth at a level of really humility as he would come before Christ. And he says, good teacher, which is interesting uh, in what has been pointed out through a number of the commentators, rabbis weren't usually referred to as good teachers. They were simply referred to as honored or teachers only. And Jesus is quick to point out that true goodness is only found in God alone, as if somehow not simply deflecting the, the compliment, but trying to redirect the compliment, going to God and God alone. Maybe in his subtle way, we don't know this, but maybe in his subtle ways of somehow simply saying, as goodness is found in God, and if you see goodness in me, the equation can be that I have received this goodness from God. And again, maybe a, a reference to his belonging or uh, being sent by God. Jesus then responds to the man's question by reminding the ruler of the of the commandments that he should know as one who is a ruler and somehow connected with the religious life of the people. You know the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and your mother. This is this, and, and in this sequence, they come the seventh, the sixth, the eighth, the ninth, and the fifth commandment of the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments that we find recorded in the book of Exodus. You might remember some time ago we had a sermon or a series of sermons preached on the Ten Commandments. And it was pointed out to us that, that the first four were really commandments of how we relate to God. The reverence that we are to have for God. Um, and then the remaining six were specifically pointing out how we relate to one another or our fellow man. There can be imagined, I think, a sincere reply as the young man says to Jesus, but all these I've kept since my youth. As it somehow suggests that he is sensitive, there's something more required of him than just keeping these commandments. Something else beyond this law that's been set before me. His statement reveals that he he recognizes that to receive eternal life, more is being to be asked of him. Something else, something more is required. And, And Jesus knows exactly what's required. Mark's gospel reveals the compassion of Jesus as he included these words in his account. Jesus looked at him and loved him. Jesus said, one thing you still lack. 
Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Heard those words before? Well, there was at least 12 around him that had heard it before. The disciples being called, all of them called to come, follow me. Here, this young man is having the invitation to become a follower of Christ. And in following Christ, to be the recipient of what the very thing he's looking for. Eternal life. Jesus told the man two things. First, he has to uh, deal with this, this thing that stands in the way. And uh, secondly, then, come follow me. What Jesus was doing here, he was hitting on really the 10th commandment. Uh, this whole thing of coveting, wanting more, uh, possibly even wanting to possess more, and maybe even showing signs of greed. But even if that doesn't land the point that Jesus is making, it is a direct reference to the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. Jesus was pointing out the stumbling block in this young man's life. Riches. Riches, earthly riches. Kathy made this point quite clear as she read from the Sermon on the Mount, as Jesus again is dealing with this problem of earthly riches, treasures on earth. Matthew 6, 24, which was read to us, says, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. The heartbreak for the rich young ruler was evident. We read, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Matthew accounts, Matthew's account reads, he went away because he had great wealth. The word sad in the original language is actually more of a reference to grief. He had a grieving heart as he walked away. From Jesus. And be certain that this same sadness was the experience of Christ as well. Because we read, Jesus looked at him. Looked at him. And then as he turned to walk away, refusing to accept the very thing that was offered to him, Eternal life. How sad. Jesus then turns to his disciples and says, how difficult it is. Can you hear it in his voice? How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Now this is... This is impossible, <laughs> a camel, to go through the eye of a needle. And, and this impossible feat, this, this impossible act, sparked the response of the people who heard the words. Well then, who can be saved? If one like this rich young ruler who, who bears all the evidence of God's favor 
blessed by his position among those who are religious, favored as worthy of his wealth, and a keeper of the law. Well, then, who can be saved? The impossibility has been addressed by some, trying to, I think, possibly soften the demand that Jesus was, was expressing here. By referring to the fact that, the, that this eye of the needle actually was supposedly a reference to a door next to the gate where for the camel to pass through, you would have to unload your camel. And the camel would have to stoop and then go through the door and then you reload your camel. There is no such evidence that uh, has been discovered that there was such a door. The fact is, it's impossible. And that's what Jesus was saying. It's impossible. The possibility rests solely, rests solely on one who will trust in Jesus and follow him. Abandoning everything else and letting it all go for the sake of being a follower of Christ. Then what seems to be impossible is possible. As God has made it so. Through Christ Jesus. If there's anything that competes for our allegiance or attention to Christ, it must be abandoned. If there's anything that somehow elevates ourselves over others, such as, again, the Pharisee in the temple, it has to be released. If there's anything at all that waters down our trust and confidence in who Christ is and what he says he is able to do for us, we have to let go of it. What must I do to inherit eternal life? This question posed by the rich young ruler has been asked by countless others as even recorded in the scriptures. In the second chapter of Acts, there is a great story. And it's when Peter preaches his first sermon. And let me tell you, it was Holy Ghost filled. This man was on fire, literally, as the Tongues, the flames of tongue, the tongues of flame <laughs> came upon him as a symbol of the presence of the Holy Spirit. And he preached the word. He preached the truth about Christ. He, he told the people of who Jesus is. And he, he quoted the prophets of Isaiah and, and of Micah and of Joel. How, who, he was, what, who he was and what he was doing for us and what he, what he offered and, and how it was rejected by man and even leading to his death and his crucifixion and his resurrection. And, and, and Peter lands on the fact that as all this has happened, just remember this, that there is a day coming when again the Lord will return. Embedded in his words of that great and glorious day, Peter says, And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And he goes on with his sermon and the the people are just becoming more and more inclined to listen to what this, this apostle has to say. This fisherman who has been set on fire by the Holy Spirit. And finally we read in Acts 2.37, Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And said to Peter and to the rest of the apostles, 
Brothers, what shall we do? <laughs> no different than asking, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What must I do to be saved? To which Peter responded, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. You will receive the indwelling Spirit that Christ himself sent to us to enable us to continue in that walk with Christ, to follow him through the power of the Holy Spirit. What came of that request? Well, about 3,000 people accepted Jesus that day. Wow. There's another scene in, in the book of Acts, which I think is just as powerful. Maybe the numbers aren't there, but boy, the testimony is there. It's, 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 it's uh, Paul and Silas. They're in prison. And they're in prison, they're singing hymns to God. <laughs> and all the prisoners are listening. Then all of a sudden, there's an earthquake. To the point that the, the gates are open and the shackles on the hands and feet of the prisoners come loose. And, and the guard comes to his senses. And he can't figure out what's going on. And he's scared to death because if the prisoners have escaped, it means his own life. And he is ready to fall on the sword to take his own life. And Paul calls out, don't worry, we're still here. <laughs> and, and the jailer calls for a lamp to go in and and sees them still there. And the jailer says to, the Paul, says to Paul and Silas, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. That's all. That's all that is required. Just to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. You know, it troubles me to, to think that those who are even within the church are possibly still wrestling with this relationship between themselves and a Savior. The one who wants to save them. The one who wants to give them treasures in heaven. The one who wants to usher them into the kingdom of God. The one who wants to give us eternal life. For this is the will of God that none should perish. And we go through this facade of, of following all the, the things that the church tells us to do. We have our checklist like the rich young ruler, that we've done this and we've done this and we've done this. But until we're at the place of when we're ready to release it all and to give it to Jesus, there is sadness in our life. And there is sadness in the life of Christ as he calls to all of us to give it all to him so that we can claim the treasures that are promised to us through him. I know, it's a, I, I, I know this for a fact, and I confess that, that I've had these same exercises in my own life of where I question my salvation. Am I really saved? And so I go back to the scriptures, and I remind myself 
There's nothing I can do except to trust in Jesus and trust in Jesus alone. And matter of fact, if you want to have, I guess, some, some reinforcement of that thought, turn to Ephesians 2 and look at verse 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's a gift from God. It's what God wants to give me, what he wants to give you. He wants, he wants to give everyone. Not a result of works, so that no one may boast. I, I made a note of some other verses that I think are pertinent to this question. Romans 10, 9. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. If you believe it, you're saved. Matthew 10, 32. So everyone who acknowledges me, meaning Jesus, before men, I will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. Jesus, standing before God, recognizing us who have acknowledged him as our Savior and Lord. Acts 16, 31. And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. That's it. <laughs> That's all that's required of us, just to believe in him, trust him. Uncompromised un, un trust. A humble heart, repenting of our sins, and claiming what Jesus wanted to give that rich, young ruler. He wanted to give him everything, the treasures of heaven, eternal life. Let's remember what we have because of the grace of God, through Christ Jesus, giving us life today and forever. Amen.